you have your Bible today, will you turn with me to one of those 12 little books at the end of the Old Testament in the Minor Prophets, the book of Jonah, chapter 3, or the texts for today are on page 9 in your bulletin. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. We pray for your blessing now, our Father, upon us as we hear this word, and we pray for a transforming work in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' good name, amen. This is the last in our little series of sermons, The School of the Prophets, and the core idea that I've been trying to bring out a bit through this series, I, this was originally suggested to me by my very good friend, Alistair Roberts, The core idea is that at Pentecost, it may not be so obvious when you read the Pentecost story, but at Pentecost, Jesus, now sitting at the Father's right hand in glory, he gave his own power and authority to the church to bring God's life-giving word to this world. Obviously, Jesus was the word of God to the world, and he gives his power and authority to bring God's word to the world. He gives it to the church. He makes his church prophets, if you like, to the nations. This is kind of the beginning of what we could call the prophethood of all believers. Now, I find that whole idea quite daunting, even though, I mean, I actually preach for a living. I still find it daunting. 
And so through this series, we've been turning for some guidance on what it means to be prophets in the world, turning to the Old Testament prophets, the prophets before Jesus. And we've looked at a number of them, of Abraham, the intercessor, Moses, the builder, Samuel, the kingmaker, Elijah and Elisha, the resistance movement, Jeremiah last week, the visionary, and today the last, Jonah, whom I've called the reactionary. Now, I think, I think the problem with the Jonah story in the Bible, and it's a bit like, you know, David and Goliath and Daniel in the lion's den, is I think probably most of us have some level of children's Bible familiarity with this story. Now, that actually might be an overstatement. I have come to realize that you cannot assume actually any biblical literacy today, even among churched people, but I think that probably most of us raised in Bible-believing churches, those of us who have grown up in Bible-believing churches, probably have some cartoonish version of this story in our head. You know, the prophet who hears God say, go to Nineveh, he runs away, big storm, throw him overboard, big fish, you know, you sort of have that thing, that story, the cartoon. And then there's almost always some attending moral lesson, which really boils down to, you know, you kind of ought to, ought to obey God. You can run, but you can't hide, <laughs> you know, children. And the focus of that children's Bible reading of Jonah is almost always this quite remarkable fish. You know, wow, fish. You don't see someone swallowed by a fish every day, and that's kind of awesome. And interestingly, the grown-up version of that children's Bible reading endlessly debates whether or not fish can actually swallow people, you know, scopes trial type stuff. And they're kind of hung up on that scientific problem, can a fish release, what was it a fish, was it a whale, etc. And what I want to suggest today is I think those readings have rather misused our friend the fish, <laughs> because the Bible, when you look at what the Bible says about Jonah, the Bible shows absolutely no interest whatsoever in the scientific oddities here. The Bible, without making any attempt to argue this case, simply assumes that creation does what God tells it to. So if God told a fish to swallow somebody, then that's what happened. There's just not a lot of debate about that. That's not what the Bible's interested in at all in this story. Jesus says this story is a sign. He says there is this generation that he was living in once a sign. There's no sign going to be given but the sign of the prophet Jonah. And it is a sign of how God deals with sinners. And the problem with this prophet, Jonah, and I'd like you to notice this because you and I are prophets, whether we want to be or not, God has called us to this. I want you to notice this. This prophet does not like how God deals with sinners. He's really quite put out with God for how he deals with sinners. I just want to notice that with you. And I just want to talk briefly today about two things, Jonah's experience of grace, backing up a little bit from our text, and then Jonah's reaction to grace. And I want to begin with his experience. Because if you read through Jonah, it's four chapters, you'll notice that it is a, this little book is very obviously hinged into two panels, you could call them. Because in chapter 1, God calls, verse 1, God says to Jonah, the son of Amittai, Arise, go to Nineveh. And in chapter 3, verse 1, God says that pretty much that same thing a second time, Arise, go to Nineveh. So these two calls open the two panels of this book. The first panel is a lot better known, that's the fish story. But an advantage of reading the second panel, like we just did, chapter 3 and 4, is it allows us to look back and understand why Jonah acted the way he did in the first panel. And we see it here in chapter 4, verse 2. Look at that if you would. Chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah he tells us here what it was that made him act the way he did back in chapter 1. And, and, and back in chapter 1, we, you'll remember this from your children's Bibles, what prompted Jonah to do something that might seem insane, to, to run from the presence of the Lord. You guys remember Cain? 
who killed his brother Abel, we're told after he killed his brother Abel, he went out from the presence of the Lord. Well, Jonah, in, in, in a real sense, is looking a bit like Cain. He is running away from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because, as he tells us here in chapter 4, verse 2, because God relents from bringing evil on evildoers. This is what I said back in my country, he says. You relent from, and actually it's very important to know that the Hebrew word there is not disaster, it is evil. You relent from evil on evildoers, because back in chapter 1, verse uh, 2, God himself said, the evil of Nineveh has come up before me. And Jonah, he hears God tell him, go preach to these evildoers, but he knows God relents of evil upon evildoers, and that's why he runs away from the presence of the Lord. We don't know this until we get to the second panel here, but Jonah is frustrated, like viscerally frustrated, that God runs his world in ways that do not line up with strict justice. It makes Jonah angry. God does not run his world in ways that line up with strict justice, and it just, Jonah, he's, he's frustrated by this, and he's so frustrated, he not only tries to escape God physically, you know, God says to Jonah there in Israel, he says, I want you to go roughly 600 miles as a crow flies east, pretty much directly east to this capital city of the Assyrian Empire at the time, Nineveh. What does Jonah do? Good obedient boy that he is. He goes directly west to the coast of the Mediterranean, hops on a ship and sails as far west as he possibly can. You couldn't, you could not be more diametrically physically opposite of what God said. And then it's interesting, Jonah's so hung up on all of this about God that he doesn't just try to escape physically, then he tries to escape mentally. He, there's a storm, and Jonah is so depressed, and so, he's so mad, he, he tries to go to sleep. He wants to check out mentally. And some of you guys know what this is like. You ever have days when you're just so sick of the world, you just want to curl up in a fetal position and just hide, and you don't want to deal with life anymore? This is Jonah. I, he doesn't want to deal with life. He wants to be asleep. Just, he wants to plug his ears, hide from God in the belly of this ship. The second panel, we will, you heard him just now say a couple of times, he'd rather be dead than alive. That's how, that's how annoyed Jonah is with how God runs his world. He's just depressed. Now, it's interesting, you remember that first story, the storm comes, a raging storm. The sea is tempestuous, and it's just, it's, it's, you know, it's going to sink the ship. And at least, interestingly, this is something Jonah understands. There are a lot of things about the way God runs his world that drive him crazy, but this he understands because he tells the sailors when they're trying to, you know, they're casting lots, the lot falls on him. He says, I'll tell you what's going on. I've offended God. I should get thrown overboard and die. Like that, that makes sense to Jonah. I'm not saying he was loving the thought of it, but it makes sense to him because that's strict justice. You throw me overboard, the sea will go, will go calm. All, God's justice will be satisfied and that'll be it. The sailors don't want to, but eventually they're forced. Their hand is forced. They throw him over. And so it is. The sinner is thrown into the deep to die, and God's justice is satisfied, and everything is calm. And that makes perfect sense. But God. But God. We're told at the end of chapter 1 that God appoints. The Hebrew word is mana. Remember that word. God appoints a great fish. You know the story. It swallows Jonah as he's sinking into the depths of the Mediterranean Sea. And after three days and nights, mysteriously held by God in a kind of watery grave, a watery tomb, you know that Jonah is reborn. He's resurrected. He is vomited out on the beach of the Mediterranean. He's a new man, new life, starting over. He's not going to die. And there's a pattern here, Jesus says. This is a sign. 
There's a pattern here that in God's wrath he remembers mercy and out of death he brings life. That's God. In God's wrath he remembers mercy and in death he brings life, obviously pointing ahead to another grave, three days and three nights, and a resurrection. What is interesting is that if you read in chapter 2 the prayer that Jonah prays from the belly of the fish, Jonah himself actually knows this about God. He knows this is God's way. He knows this is God's pattern because twice he mentions praying as he was sinking down into the depths, praying toward God's temple. And the temple, you remember Solomon's dedication of the temple, one of the things that he prayed was, God, whenever your people have sinned and you bring your judgment on them and they're sort of in a state of death, if they pray toward your temple, remember your mercy and give them life again. And Jonah remembers that as he's sinking into the depths, that God, he's like this. In wrath, he remembers mercy. That's what the temple symbolizes. Out of death, he brings life. That's what the temple symbolizes, at least for Israel, at least for Jews. And Jonah himself cries out for that mercy as he's dying in the Mediterranean. But now he's been reborn. He's been resurrected. And there's still this mission to this blasted Gentile city. Now, in Jonah's time, which is in the first half of the 8th century before Christ, Assyria is not yet the military superpower that it will shortly be, say, by Jeremiah's time later in that century. But it is already a dominant city in the Middle East. It has already exacted tribute from Israel and Israel's kings. This is a serious enemy who's going to get a lot more serious, and you get the sense that Jonah senses this, and he's got to go to the capital of that Gentile power that has already oppressed his people in a very big way, and he's got to preach on God's behalf. And that brings us to the second panel. So that's Jonah's experience of grace, and now we come to the second panel and to Jonah's reaction to grace. And he goes, you see, and he preaches uh, in this enormous city. And I mean, this is just, you know, this is not what I expect he expected to happen. I would not have expected this to happen. In verse 5, the people of Nineveh, with like no context, I mean, they've had some contact with, with Israel, but I mean, not, not enough for, you know, the whole city to be spiritually ready for this. They believe God. I mean, this is just kind of like, you know, God moves. <laughs> the Holy Spirit just does something here. Jonah goes, and, you imagine if I walked into New York City and started preaching this message, you know, 40 days and you're all going to die. You know, I'd be, if I made it to the news, I'd be a laughingstock. And you'd expect Jonah to be laughed out of the city. They believe God. God gets a hold of these people's hearts somehow, and they start putting on sackcloth and sitting in ashes and crying out for mercy. They repent, verse 8, of their evils. Notice they are putting on sackcloth, returning from, repenting from their evil way and their violence in their hands. We're sorry, God, we're, we're, we, we've sinned against you. They, 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 they repent of their evil, and then God relents of bringing evil. Verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, he relented of the, again, the word is evil, he relented of the evil just exactly as Jonah feared he would. These people, these murderous people, these cruel, they'll be far more cruel in the future. They're just, they're bad people. They're deeply immoral. You might even say kind of morally disgusting. They're, they're, they're evildoers, and they say they're sorry, put on some sackcloth, and God backs away, and he gives mercy to them. And Jonah, things really boil to a head now. Jonah's just furious with God. Where's your justice? I, I knew this about you. You know, you told Moses, I'm merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and relent from disaster. And what I don't 
figure out here, God, is you also told Moses you don't clear the guilty. Where's your justice? I knew you would do it. And I want to let God's question in response to Jonah really just sink in for a second. In our lives, 21st century, prophets in our time, God asks this question, do you do well to be angry? And that's what I want to ask you guys today. Do you do well to be angry? Now, as for Jonah, he doesn't seem to really hear that question that God asks in verse 4. What do you make of this camping trip? He goes up on the hill outside of Nineveh, and he sets up a booth, and he camps, and he gets some shade over his head there with his tent, and he starts watching the city. What do you make of that? I think there's only one possible explanation for what Jonah is doing. Jonah's sitting there up on the city, up on the hill outside of the city, and he's basically hoping for one of two things. Either that these wicked Assyrians, being wicked Assyrians, will call down, will do more sinning and call down more wrath of God upon their sins, or God will turn back from, he will relent from his mercy. He'll change his mind about being merciful to them. He's waiting for judgment. He's, the 40 days are still running. And Jonah's actually hopeful that maybe God didn't quite mean it, that maybe actually God will bring the iron fist on, on he'll make good on that original threat against Assyria and their capital city. Now, as you're reading through the story, I don't think it takes a whole lot of imagination to sense that something's kind of off here. I mean, if you guys ever found me sitting, you know, on Sunken Meadow Beach, gazing at the sky, and you're like, what are you doing out here, Pastor Miller? I'm waiting for God to drop his wrath on all those wicked people in East Northport that I have to live with every day because they refuse to worship and serve the Creator who is blessed forevermore. And I'm just waiting for God to drop his wrath on them, and that's what I'm praying for. I think you guys would say, you know what, Pastor Miller, I think it's time for a sabbatical, brother. I think you need a break. There's something not quite admirable here in the vindictiveness of this prophet's anger. Even though, let's do, do, do let's be real for a minute, will you and I stoke something like this, something like this in our hearts toward those that we view as wicked? Don't you have moments when you look around at the world and you see really perverse sin and wickedness and you're like why doesn't God just bring some wrath and the hard thing is we are to hate evil it is no sign of good Christianity to be like oh you know it's all good it is not all good God hates evil we're to hate evil and there's a tension here but there's something off with Jonah and it takes God's wisdom to pry open the lid as to what exactly is wrong here and he does so Jonah's up there camping. God appoints, again, the Hebrew word mana, three times in, in chapter 4, verses 6, 7, and 8. Three times, you see, God appoints mana. He appoints, just like the fish in the first panel, three successive creatures to minister in rather different ways to this very angry prophet. You know, the, the, the plant, the kikayon in Hebrew, the, the, the plant to give him some shade. And then next morning at dawn, this little serpentine worm that kills the plant. And then with the plant dead and the worm having had its lunch, a scorching east wind God appoints to blow on the sunburnt head of Jonah the prophet. And it's very interesting, Jonah's reaction in chapter 4, verses 8, and the beginning of verse 9, you see, Jonah's reaction to all of this is exactly the same as when God spared Nineveh. In verse 3, Please take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live because you spared Nineveh. Chapter 4, verse 8. It's 
he wanted to die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. God says, you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah says, yes, I have a right to be angry. It's exactly the same, those two responses, to the sparing of Nineveh and the death of the plant. And it's here as God is getting into Jonah's heart, he exposes the deep flaw in Jonah's anger. The, the, the profound thing that Jonah has missed that's making his anger distorted and even self-contradictory. And I want to ask you this question, and I want you to try to figure it out. Why is Jonah so angry that he wants to die when Nineveh is spared, and he's so angry he wants to die when the plant is destroyed? Why is his reaction to those entirely different things the same? The same anger, the same sense of injustice when Nineveh is spared and when the plant is destroyed. Why is Jonah's sense of justice so invested in the plant's ongoing life while being just as invested in Assyria's ruin and destruction? See, God's got a, he's got a lever prying open Jonah's anger. There's a, there's a strange contradiction here. Why does justice seek life for the plant and seek ruin for the Assyrians? And what starts to emerge as God then speaks is how, as I said at the opening of the service, how utterly tiny and inadequate Jonah's little box is through which he is looking at the world and how incomprehensibly bigger God's view of things is. And I want you to notice two things that God sees here that Jonah doesn't see or will not see. God sees here the goodness of what he's made and the wisdom of what he's planned. Let's look at those in turn. The goodness of what he's made. Now, there's something interesting about this plant. This plant is gratuitous. By gratuitous, I just mean there's no reason for it, except God decided to make a plant. Jonah didn't work for it. It's not payment to Jonah. It's gratuitous. It's free. It's literally a free, not lunch, but a free gift, a free shade. It just is. Not because of anything, not as repayment for anything. It just is. And it's interesting, it's precisely because of its gratuity, its freeness, that Jonah values it. He's, it helps him, it delights him, that out here sitting in desert conditions, suddenly, just strangely, serendipitously, there's a plant, and I have shade, and he's happy. The, 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 the gratuity of this plant really makes him, it fills him with joy. And yet, precisely because of its gratuity, there's no injustice if it's destroyed. Is there? Where's the injustice here? This is gratuitous. Jonah didn't earn it. The plant didn't earn the right to its own existence. It has no right to exist in some moral calculus. Jonah has no right to its existence in some moral calculus. And what God is showing Jonah by kind of coaxing forth his anger a bit, he is showing Jonah that his calculus of strict justice, which is important, but it's not big enough, to explain the value of this plant that Jonah rightly feels, he rightly feels something good has been destroyed. And actually, a, a strict justice calculus can't explain that feeling or the actual value that that feeling recognizes. Jonah feels this plant is inherently good as a creature of God, and it has mysterious potentials to bless and help the world, and he feels a loss and a sense of anger about that. But you can't really explain that if you're thinking in terms of strict justice. And that is actually true of every single creature God has made, if you think about it. Strictly speaking, there's not a creature in all of this cosmos that deserves to exist. 
It is God's simple gift that anything at all is. We're already beyond the realm of strict justice when you simply ponder the fact that anything at all is. It exists. There's not one creature God has ever made that he had to make. Not one creature that ever has existed that it's justice that this existed. Not one. You know where you kind of feel this? I could give any number of illustrations, but I think parents especially feel the difference between the strict justice calculus and the more gift calculus. You, know, you ever notice as your kids get older that you sometimes look at your grown son and you see the little boy? Or you see your grown daughter, she's a woman now, and you just feel immeasurable love for that little girl that you remember? I've wondered why that is. Why do you remember the little people? And it seems like they grab your heart in a way that sometimes your older kids, it's different with your older kids. I don't think it's just sentimentalism. I don't think it's just that we're oh so fond of cuddliness, which let's be honest, most of us are not that cuddly as adults. I think this is it. I think that it's when children are little, they haven't done much yet or left undone much yet. It's when they're little that we can see most easily what is true, which is what a sheer gift they actually are. You just feel that when you hold an infant, how full of wonder it is that this little thing even exists at all. And that's kind of all you think about. You just feel the giftedness of this little one, this chubby little toddler or whatever. Now, it's interesting, that giftedness, that sheer wonderful giftedness of the createdness of this little person remains true as they grow it remains true all of their life. It's true for every grown-up in this room here today. But the thing is, as people get older, the calculus of justice starts to run. And things are done that ought not to be done. And things are left undone that ought to be done. And you begin to see a sinner. And that calculus of justice, which is totally appropriate in its place, begins to be a lens through which very often you begin to see someone in your life and you don't see the gift, you see the faults, you see the flaws, you see the sins, you even see awful injustices. And it becomes increasingly hard to see the gift of the sheer createdness of this being and very hard to see the humanity and to extend mercy and to extend grace as that sense of the giftedness recedes. I've known kids that have absolutely cherished their kids as infants who hate them by the time they're teens because of justice. And Jonah can see the goodness in a plant God made. God, how much more does God see his own handiwork in an entire city of his creatures, both human and bizarrely, God mentions the cattle. There's a lot of cows in Nineveh. You're like, what? God likes cows because he made them. He does not simply see a bunch of wicked, miserable sinners deserving instant wrath. There is sin. He sent Jonah because there's sin, there's evil, there's wickedness. Justice is not absent here. That's not all God sees. And that may explain why God, through history, is far more patient than you and I would like to be, much slower to anger than you and I would like to be, gives much space to repent that, I'll be honest, Ben Miller sitting on the throne of the cosmos would not give. He talks about this through his servant Peter. God's not slow to fulfill his promise. He's patient toward you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, although the day of the Lord will come. And he actually says to his servants who speak as prophets in his name, the servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, must not be a reactionary like Jonah, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, because God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may, may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's the heart of a prophet who speaks in God's name, because you can see the goodness of what God made and the wisdom of what God planned. God also sees that. He sees the wisdom of what he planned, both immediately and ultimately. Think about what God has planned for Assyria and Nineveh immediately. For a day, for a day, beloved, that plant provided some shade. And then it was gone, and a blasting east wind came when God removed that plant. What if Nineveh serves a similar purpose as that plant? protecting Israel from a far worse blasting wind, let alone God's grace and patience with Nineveh here. What is God perhaps doing for his people through this wicked city? James Bejan points this out very powerfully. He says, unbeknownst to, Jude, to Jonah, unbeknownst to Jonah, Assyria's existence provided the Israelites with considerable shade, considerable protection. It shielded them from more hostile forces in the ancient Near East, most notably Babylon. Given a more complete view of history, Jonah would have gladly spared Nineveh if only to prevent the events of 587 B.C., Jerusalem's fall to Babylon, which represent the culmination of Israel's sorrows. And it is worth thinking about in God's proximate wisdom, His immediate wisdom. Who knows what evils this evil is obstructing? Who knows what accidental goods even a very wicked empire may be preserving? You see, where we see only enemies and the need for God's wrath, God in His wisdom sees opportunities for His wisdom and for His grace to open unexpected fruitfulness in the midst of evils and to confound by doing that the counsels of the wicked. So often what human beings intend for evil, God has planned for good. Maybe Nineveh is the shade, if Jonah could just trust God's wisdom enough to see it. And God sees the wisdom of what he's planned, not only, not only immediately, but ultimately, because God says something interesting about this plan. It came into being in a, in a moment, and it vanished in a night. Nations are like that, too. Nations like this plant come into being in a night, and they perish in a night, and God's pity on Nineveh will not be indefinite. It will fall. It will fall. God's judgment will come. And for us sitting here today in 2021, we can know that ultimate judgment will come. God's justice will not sleep forever, but it is not yet by God's will. It's not yet. That final judgment that will set all things right, it has not yet occurred by God's will. And if we ever reach a place where we are attempting to bring that final judgment into history before God's time, Jesus tells us in the Gospels what will happen if you try to bring that final judgment where we set everything right, we're going to fix it all, and we bring that into history. What God, Jesus says is going to happen is you're going to rip up a lot of wheat with the tares, and you're going to miss what God is doing amid even the worst of the evils. 
There are proper temporal judgments that need to take place in this world. There are judgments in time and history that must take place. Not one of them has the wisdom or the power or the authority to execute the ultimate justice of God. And any time it's been tried, it has been a bloodbath of injustice. And that's where I want to end this series. As you and I bring God's life-giving word to the world, I don't think there's a better question to leave lingering in our minds and to ask ourselves very often, please don't tune me out, I'm not quite done. I don't think there's a more suitable question for us to have in our minds as prophets to the nations than this simple question God asked, do you do well to be angry? Prophets care deeply about justice. But when wrath boils, it is worth asking ourselves as Rebecca DeYoung channels from an early desert father in her book, Glittering Vices, it is worth asking this question as wrath boils inside of us. What is your anger guarding? What is your anger actually guarding? In your wrath, are you really standing and seething for God's interests? Are you really guarding God's honor? Are you really guarding God's goodness? Are you really guarding God's purposes? Are you guarding what God's wisdom sees? Are you guarding what God's grace values? And here's the question, beloved, then why are you so angry with his providence? Why are you so angry with what he is doing? What are you guarding with your anger? Is it possible at times when wrath is just boiling? I mean, sometimes anger is, is truly a, a, pro, a totally appropriate response to injustice. But so often we need to ask ourselves, do you do well to be angry? Is it maybe that your wrath is guarding something else? Is your wrath maybe really about you? Really about your interests? Really about your comfortable life? Really about your superiority? Really about the fact that you don't feel like you're in control? It's worth asking, do you do well to be angry? Because if the cross of Jesus Christ is at the center of our prophetic message to this world, if that's the core of the message as prophets, should that cross not deeply, deeply season the manner of our prophetic ministry? Amen. We thank you, O Lord our God, for your steadfast love, your immense patience and your mercy beyond all measure. In Jesus we pray. Amen.